You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Ocean Currents. This is a show where we talk about the blue part of our planet, the ocean. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. We talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, ocean adventurers, archaeologists, and more, all trying to learn about the blue part of our planet that is vital to all life. I bring this show to you from our local Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four amazing ocean places in California and part of a national system of protected places. Ocean Currents is part of the West Marin Matters series, where every Monday at 1 you can tune in to hear about an environmental or social topic of local and global importance. So for today, my topic today is ocean leadership. And here's my question. What will it take to raise ocean conservation issues amongst legislators and voters in the United States? With a multitude of global and social issues impacting our planet, the ocean, the largest habitat on the planet, which for too long was thought to be unchangeable, it's changing. And there's a real lack of action amongst our legislative leaders, except for perhaps a select minority. There is also a wide divide in our country amongst voters and legislators about the urgency of protecting our ocean. So what will it take to change the tide on this awareness? Today, we'll talk with two leaders in this arena, the director of the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries, part of NOAA, Dan Basta. And on the second half of the show, the executive director for Ocean Champions, a, na- a non-governmental organization advocating for ocean conservation on Capitol Hill and at home. So stay with us. We'll be right back to dive into this topic. Today, we are talking about ocean leadership. With me on the phone is my guest, Dan Basta. Dan, you are live on the air. Hey, Jen, I'm here. How are you? Thanks so much for tuning in. Happy to be here. Dan Basta is the director of the National Marine Sanctuary Program based in Silver Spring, Maryland. And I'm so glad to finally have you on the air, Dan. I've had a lot of other staff in our national program on the air, and it's wonderful to have the director the brains behind it all with us. So I wanted to start with how you got to the ocean. You have a background in engineering and, in fact, some aerospace engineering. And what led you to the ocean? Well, you know, the, uh, the big thing about any of us is serendipity has a way of finding people. I mean, I had no idea that I would ever be doing what I do. And, I, you know, as you've said accurately, I was in the aerospace engineering business, and I'm an engineer. And uh, one thing led to the other in changing my career, et cetera. And uh, many years ago, a colleague of mine came to this new organization called NOAA, which I thought was kind of like spelled (laughs) N-O-A-H. I had no idea of this fledging uh, organization. And he gave me a call. I was at a think tank here in D.C., and he said, we might be able to do some good stuff. You know, I've been around water, you know, coming from New York and Long Island, but I'm not a marine scientist. Well, not at the time. So it's kind of serendipity, actually. Wonderful. And you're an avid diver, too, still diving all around the world? 
Uh, yeah, I've uh, been diving 30 years, maybe. Still an instructor. Just over last weekend in the Florida Keys with John Hallis, who you may know, right? Just retired, one of the champions of underwater technology uh, for mooring buoys around the world. Well, we just talked about mooring buoys in our last show, talking with a tsunami expert. They are really important tools for so many different aspects of science with ocean and, and warning systems in place. So um, briefly, in your words, we don't always talk about National Marine Sanctuaries on this show in detail, but in your words as the director, what are National Marine Sanctuaries? Very interesting you asked that. I've been talking to a young man about that uh, just a few minutes ago. Well, we know exactly what the legislation says they are. You know, these are these important ecological, biological, and cultural places uh, that are of great value to our country. That's what the legislation says. Uh, there are 13 national marine sanctuaries and one national monument in the system at this time. The real estate that, that we are, quote, responsible for is over 150,000 square nautical miles, which is more than all national parks combined. But with that said, what is really what they're about? Sanctuaries are, are places where community, economy, and ecology come together, where you find the sweet spot of how you can sustain the system, sustain the culture, and sustain the economic well-being of people that are invested in that place. That's about place. Sanctuaries are about places. They're about communities. They are, in fact, about the future. But in the scheme of all things, what they are, they are really tools that express and explain the way of the future for all Americans. They're a scale that people can understand how actions occur. You cannot say, save the ocean, and anybody get their mind around it. But if you say save Monterey Bay or the Florida Keys or a place that you can identify with and a community, the scale makes it work for you. There are places to project to the entire nation from that are important as we are moving forward in this changing world. You have to share them and you have to use them for this purpose. The sanctuaries are an imagination, if you will, and they are a vehicle uh, in how we adapt in this changing world. That's great. Thanks for that. I wasn't sure when you were going to stop because you, I know you could talk about that for an hour. About two hours. <laughs> well, I'm glad you mentioned the point about scale in terms of people connecting to one place because that's certainly um, a thing that people need is one place to really have in their mind instead of this humongous, large, hard-to-quantify place. Um, you mentioned in terms of really serving a role for the bigger picture, and what role does the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries play with um, supporting ocean conservation legislation in terms of larger issues that do impact the entire ocean? Well, you know, we're actively involved uh, in, in all of that. Uh, when you say the larger ocean, we have joint programs with about 22 countries. We have sister sites around the world. We have convened UNESCO's first-ever meeting of marine world heritage sites. Uh, we pursue a lot of, of these sort of items, both 
internally in our country and around the world. We have limits to what we're allowed to do, of course. Uh, we do live in a government with an administration with directives. But I think that our partners, and we have about 400 partners, these are universities, museums, Aquarius, in the U.S. alone. We have a National Marine Sanctuary Foundation, an independent entity, whose sole purpose is, is to support the sanctuary system of the United States. We have a caucus in the House of Representatives. Uh, we have a significant coalition, if you will, that because sanctuaries exist, is able to form around it that acts to those things. Uh, and I think in depending upon the administration, uh, we uh, have more or less influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the partners are so key. I, I hear that clearly. And when you talk about the numbers, it's, it's pretty powerful. It's kind of staggering, really. What do you see as the biggest challenge of engaging on this legislative level to promote ocean and environmental laws that promote conservation? I think it's public will. You know, I, I certainly, I mean, if you, and Jen, you know this better than I do. If you look at the polls, what Americans care about, they really don't care about oceans. Even environment is, like, low on their list. And in environment, oceans are low on their list. So it's about being relevant. Uh, we have to create a momentum of attention that caring for oceans are caring for yourself. Oceans actually have been driving our economy, and we're not even cognizant of it. So your National Marine Sanctuary Foundation and program created Capitol Hill Ocean Week, which is where a lot of legislative discussions take place. Yeah, it happens once a year in June for a week. And this year, I'm happy to report on the air that President Clinton will be accepting an award. That's fantastic. So Capitol Hill Oceans Week brings together different legislators, senators, Congress people to talk about ocean issues? Yep. It brings together the leadership of oceans in the United States and culminates in an awards dinner with 500 of your closest leading personalities across that continuum uh, here in D.C. So you talk about um, highlighting President Clinton. Tell me a little bit about some of the uh, successes he had in his his, uh, presidency. Well, uh, actually... Bill Clinton started a lot of what most people today would think of as ocean awareness. 1998, the year of the ocean, that was the Clinton administration. It created a worldwide focal point on oceans and quite a number of proclamations and executive orders that he issued began a number of things, one of which ultimately led in the Bush administration to the Papahanaumokuakea Marine Monument. At the time, the largest ever area on the planet set aside for a conservation purpose. And our country did that, and it's had a major, major effect internationally. So Bill Clinton started a great deal of stuff in 1998, in the last couple of years of his last administration. That momentum that he began, we've lost. We have lost that momentum in awareness and attention and investment. And at Capitol Hill Ocean Week in June, where he will accept this award, 
I'm sure he's going to have a lot to say about that. What's good? I'll hear what he has to say to help hopefully revitalize that movement. We need leadership that can inspire. Leadership that can inspire. Is this in our legislators? And how do we get them to have the ocean in their consciousness? We know there are some legislators that are incredible proponents of the ocean, and we really value them. But how do we get there? It seems like that's one of the big issues that we're facing. These are the people that are making the laws in our country. Well, as I said, you know, the, the simple answer is it's a public will question. But the more specific answer is relevancy. You must make it relevant to what is of concern on people's minds today. What people are talking about around the dinner table or what the Congress is wrestling with. And oceans are relevant to that. But unless you're relevant, it's very hard to get the imagination and then the commitment of the legislators in this process. I dare say I don't know of any sort of congressman or senator that was elected because of their stand on oceans. It's not the issue. Mm-hmm. It's about well-being, prosperity, economy. It's about other things. It's about the war on terror. It's about things that are absolutely critical in people's minds. Touch those, touch public will, other things happen. And the ocean community has to recognize it has to use non-conventional methods in order to get the attention of citizens, legislators, and media. Not just pretty pictures. For those just tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents, and my guest today is Dan Basta, the director of the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries, and we're talking about ocean leadership and helping to change this will in our country to raise this importance of ocean awareness. And talking about non-conventional methods, what are some of the ways you're thinking of helping to translate ocean conservation into the economy and the federal budget deficit? Well, uh, the Obama administration has given us a clue with two things that uh, the president has done most recently. First is his proclamation on the great outdoors many people may be familiar with. Only one thing is, oops, forgot the ocean in that proclamation. Duh, it's all terrestrial. Mistake. However, that is sort of being worked on, that the proclamation on the great outdoors, of course, includes oceans. So that's one angle already in our administration we currently have. The other is the attention to tourism. And that was in the State of the Union address by the president. And when you look at the numbers, tourism is the next coming major industry in the United States uh, in terms of jobs, in terms of income. I just heard a statistic today that uh, I think Epcot Center in uh, Florida, the Orlando area, 51 million visitors a year. It's a big number. If If you look at, in the coastal parts of our country, tremendous drivers in economy uh, that these special places sort of generate. Uh, tourism is a, is a way in which, because it's dollars, it's jobs, it's the future of income, to get messages across that demonstrate that without a healthy and sustainable ecosystem or, or local ocean place, not likely that these kinds of tourist 
dollars continue. In the Florida Keys, the population of year-round visitors is about 79,000. We get on the order of 4 million visitors a year. Over a billion dollars of income is generated by that. So tourism is a major issue. And, you know, Jen, out in your area, as you know very well, maybe the viewers have been reading the papers as well, America's Cup is coming to San Francisco. That is a wonderful draw. A lot of things can be spoken about in the context of the America's Cup. It'll bring tens of thousands of people to the region, as you know. So those two things give us an in to be relevant right now to things that this administration has said are important and relevant. you got to get on what people are saying is relevant. So one thing I've seen is quite frightening, and it sounds horrible, but some of the advertising for some tourism is see it before it's gone. And I'm just curious, how do you reflect on that in terms of promoting tourism, but at the same time, we're at a really critical point here. Well, that's, that's the wrong kind of advertising. You know, we, we work with a lot of uh, hotel chains and things, and what we've discovered is that um, it's the repeat visitor that is, is where the uh, tourist economy is looking. It's the person who will come back to a place second time, the third time, not the there once, never back. And, and what they want to come back for on the second or the third time is tourism is becoming something that also has, on a repeat visit, a purpose. I want to go back to some place I can do something at. I just don't want to go back to a place and sit around the pool or lay on the beach. I want to have something to do that's good and that is, in fact, helping the place sustain itself and be that attraction that I, that I know it to be. So the, the, the negative spin on the tourism, I think, is a, is a small thing, actually. And I think it, it may make a few people some money in the short term, but it's really not where the entire industry is going. It's going exactly the opposite way. Uh, it's being eco-friendly. It's providing eco-friendly experiences and an enrichment to, to a person's sense of self when they decide to spend a dollar for tourism in that way. Uh, it's, a, it's a brave new world out there, how to sort of craft that. Yeah, that's interesting. So tourism's a big piece of this. And in terms of other Americans, I, you know, when I read online about polls of where regionally where people are, I, I know that coming here from West Marin, where KWMR is, we're, it's a very strong ocean conservation, environmentally friendly community. And I, I'm I'm really, it's wonderful to be a part of that community. How do we reach out to other places that are not? And are, how do we connect with those types of audiences? And I know tourism is one way, but I'm, that's something I've, I've been struggling with a lot. Well, we do it in a number of ways. Uh, first, uh, you have to take advantage of the technology that exists today. So social media is a, is a driver for that. Uh, and your programming uh, has to point the ability to do that. When, when we did our Aquarius uh, mission, which is an underwater habitat in Florida Keys, um, about 18 months ago, we had over a 10-day mission, I want to say 1.3 million people that visited us for more than 15 minutes. 
and we had over 100 million uh, sort of touches everywhere in the world. you got to create the programming that people are going to want to be touched with. But then you have to understand that you got to be willing to touch people when they want to be touched, where they want to be touched, how they want to be touched in the moment. So you got to create programming that can do that. That's one way. And, and, you know, we do a fair bit of that with our education programming, and I think most people would be surprised, you know, at the reach. Not enough, though. Not enough. So another way to think about this is um, communities, like communities. And I don't mean like communities on the coast, but special places, communities on the coast, are equivalent and share same problem of sustainability as special communities and places on land. For example, if you want to ensure that Estes National Park in Colorado will be there for the next generation, you can't build a high enough fence around it. If you want to ensure that Monterey Bay is going to be a vital and vibrant place for the next century, you can't build a big enough wall around it. There's common ground among communities that should be sharing a larger agenda. It's not just about oceans, and it's not just about mountains and land. So community-to-community pairings are a way in which you reach those other audiences. Why does somebody in Idaho care about supporting something in Stowag and Bank in Massachusetts? Because if I can support them ensure the whales and habitats sustain, they can support me to ensure that the habitat that empower my place can be sustained as well. Larger coalitions are required. That's another way to do that. Uh, you've got to take the positive, not the negative in most of this. And we do, not, oh, woe is us. So is this part of the National Marine Sanctuary campaign? You were talking about leading a campaign this year, and I know this has involved kind of looking beyond our sanctuaries to larger communities. Do you want to give us a little bit more of how this is going to take place? Yeah, I don't know how much I should say on, on the air about this, Jen, <laughs> actually, because the kind of things that you need to do are, are out, of the, out of the box. You know, it's film. As you know, you're working on film products, interstitials, as we call them. It's a TV show we've created that is embryonic at Monterey Bay every two weeks. You know, it's like a Wayne's World metaphor one tries to create. It's about helping create the, uh, the Blue Ocean Film Festival and inspiring filmmakers to interact with each other and with the marine world and create new ideas and films. You know, it's about working with the rock and roll folks, the Beach Boys and programming with them. It's about creating a, a momentum in a lot of places that you can't figure it all out. You don't know what conversations a filmmaker will have at Blue with another filmmaker and create the next great film. You don't know what that is. It's about working with America's Cup and finding a way in which the uh, yachting communities begin to understand a different view of themselves regarding what they may own in this conservation 
drama that we play. And you'll never know what all those connections are between them or what programs they may want to create. But you've got to stimulate it. You've got to nurture it. Uh, and that is one way in which you build this, this bigger momentum or what you, you could call a tipping point. And read the book. You know, one morning you wake up and all the kids are wearing white sneakers. And you can't figure out how that happened. Well, there was a deliberate sort of process. You just didn't know it. That ultimately found its way and it tipped things. We have to be willing to step out of our standard thinking to tip things. And you've got to get a large enough critical mass so that you have the effects we were talking about earlier. It's an ethics value thing in the end. Well, it's definitely worth a shot, and that's definitely a role I've seen National Marine Sanctuaries, our whole entire program do, is really serving as a bridge to bring people together to facilitate more connections. And I've seen that as a great stimulus in our our program of helping ocean conservation as a whole. Maybe I should have said that. (laughs) (laughs) We just have a couple minutes left here, Dan, and I just want to ask you, what is the one thing you're really hoping to see happen in your tenure here as the director of the National Marine Sanctuaries? Well, you know, I gotta, I've got i been doing this now, running the, the uh, system for about a decade, a little bit longer maybe, and there's a couple things that are absolutely dramatically needed, and our country's failing. We need new marine sanctuaries. We haven't had a National Marine Sanctuary designated in 12 years, and that was in the Great Lakes. We need additional special ocean places designated as marine sanctuaries. And there are communities that are asking for that around the country and in the Great Lakes. We need to allow that to happen in our country. That is, that is, that is one legacy that I would like to see. I would like to see a, a, another thing, you know, when my tenure is over, about the way in which marine sanctuaries are relevant, not just to a marine conservation problem, but to the basic problems confronting the country, and recognized as such, actually, including recognized on the international arena as well. Oceans connect us all. Every nation on Earth, most nations, not the landlocked ones, have special ocean places. And that fabric that connects them to the ocean connects us to the ocean, and hence one to each other. It is a marvelous metaphor for how we begin to rethink things on Earth scales. I want to wake up, you know, 20 years from now and read the newspaper headlines that are talking about new coalitions of oceans, that are speaking about how a sanctuary in a non-sanctuary place at the moment is a bridge to, you know, as you've said, how local communities are taking responsibility for themselves because I think sanctuaries, because they're special, have a special role to play and a special responsibility. We're terribly underfunded. We always have been. Uh, second thought, really. And at the, uh, the risk, you know, I'll say our country spends less on marine sanctuaries than it does on an F-18. that makes sense to you? No. Of course it doesn't. Make <laughs> so, so where is the national sort of will or priority here? It's not clear. And I don't think anybody, you know, is sort of saying, no, we hate oceans, we hate this. I think it's out of sight, out of mind. 
always been okay, very big, take care of itself. I think that's the issue. I think a changing climate environment is is getting people's attention. Uh, but I'd like to see, you know, sanctuaries being more central than just these in, interesting curios that maybe 10 or 15 million Americans worship. I'd like to see them being on the agenda everywhere for what they mean and people wanting to replicate what they mean in their own places and neighborhoods. It's a big, tall order, I know. But if you don't think large visions, I submit you don't think. Well, Dan, thank you so much for your time. I hear the charge of creating relevance to our daily lives, creating the ocean to be more relevant to everything about our lives as a a way to help engage Americans more in this this fight for ocean awareness at the higher level. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on, on, on the line, Danny. We're going to transition to our next guest in just a few minutes. But for those just tuning in, you've been listening to Dan Basta, the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries Director, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. We're talking about ocean leadership. And, Dan, thanks again for your support, and we'll be in touch. Uh, Jenny, I need to know that. Did I talk too much? <laughs> no. You're live on the air, buddy. I know. I just I got to get a check-in with you. You're Your good. audience can, can answer that. All right. Take care. Have a great afternoon. Okay, Dan. Bye. I should, full disclosure, Dan Basta is the director of my boss's boss's boss. So we're somewhat interrelated here. Um, Dan Basta is the director of the program that I work for, Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. So nice to have his perspective. And I agree, the relevance piece is is one we struggle with quite a bit. We're going to take a short break and come back and talk with Mike Dunmire, who is with Ocean Champions, a non-governmental organization really working on Capitol Hill with legislators themselves. And we're going to hear a little bit more about this program um, that he works with in just a little bit. So please stay with us. You're tuned to KWMR. staying with us. You're tuned to Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock, and we are talking about ocean leadership today on Ocean Currents. And on the phone with me, I believe, we have Mike Dunmire from Ocean Champions. Mike, you're live on the air. Hi, Jennifer. How are you doing? Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Mike Thanks is the, for having me on. Oh, sorry. Mike is the executive director of Ocean Champions, a national conservation group, and he's calling in from Delaware today. So, Mike, tell us a little bit about what is Ocean Champions all about? Uh, sure, Jennifer. We're, we're pretty unique. Uh, we're actually the only ocean organization that endorses and financially supports candidates for Congress or members of Congress who are strong on ocean issues. Uh, we, uh, we then work with folks that we help elect to try to pass good ocean policy and try to beat some of the harmful stuff. It's a, it's a model that, that uh, is pretty prevalent in most other areas of, of, uh, of our society, but we are the only ocean group that does this. And this is a fairly new group. I know that there was a report written by your two co-founders and that really looked at the need for how to raise ocean conservation, and, and it kind of came down to some key parts, and this was one of them in terms of political engagement, right? 
Uh, yeah, that's true. The, uh, the gentleman who's my partner, who's actually the guy who founded Ocean Champions and uh, the, the guy who co-founded with him is uh, David Wilmot and Jack Stern. Uh, David had been doing ocean conservation work for some time. He's a marine biology Ph.D. from Scripps out there in, uh, on the West Coast. Uh, but much to the chagrin of his scientist brothers, he went out and used that fine degree to go to try and change ocean policy for the better. And he had some success, but uh, what he found was that the oceans were losing way more often that, than, than he thought that they should. And being the scientist that he is, he decided to take a step back and look at it analytically. Uh, and he compared the ocean political community to uh, other more successful communities. And what he saw was that the ocean community was was very good at uh, at trying to affect uh, change through uh, lawsuits. Uh, they had a, a solid grassroots base in certain areas, and and they had uh, you know really a good brand overall. But the one thing that they did not do was engage politically. They didn't help elect the people that were going to help them. So at the end of the day, what you find is that uh, you can be the best advocate in the world, but if the people you're talking to don't care about your issue. Uh, you're not going to get very far. Mm-hmm. Uh, our previous guest, Dan Basta, was talking about relevance, and that's one of the main issues we're, we're really struggling with is amongst voters, and I imagine legislator, legislators as well, is, is, is making the ocean relevant to everything else that is on the agenda for making political decisions. And how do you see that in terms of um, making science relevant or ocean issues relevant to your, the folks that you're working with? Well, you know, um, it's, uh, it's it's tricky because none of the critters that live in the ocean have yet earned the right to vote, uh, and not too many people that, uh, that that really think about oceans all the time think about them in the political sense. We we understand the the the, the hierarchy of priorities, and and if you kind of take that Maslow's approach to things in terms of you know food, shelter you know, basic welfare, you've got to go a pretty long way out before people start really thinking about the ocean. And when you look at the kinds of economic times that we've been in for the last few years, people have a lot more personal, what they would see as more immediate needs in front of them. Um, so you, you've got to you've got to go into this with a, with a realistic and, and pragmatic approach to things, even though, as, as we all know, the oceans, you know, give us half of the air that we breathe, they feed you know, so many people, they're a source of food and medicine, and of course, you know, unbelievable emotional uh, 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 warmth and, and, and importance for people. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, you're, you're not going to show up really high on the, on the hierarchy. So what you have to do, what we do, is we form very close relationships with the chairman of the subcommittees and committees uh, where ocean issues can originate, and we try to understand what's on their agenda. Uh, what they would like to get done in a given congressional session, because that really defines the short-term list of the possible. And you look for what are the positive things that you can move within that frame and then try to stitch together a fabric of support to move those issues, uh, understanding that along the way uh, you're going to be competing with a a lot of other issues that really for the larger voting public are going to seem to be more important. Mm -hmm. What are the top issues that Ocean Champions are working on right now? Uh, well, as I mentioned, we, uh, we 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 do some work from the inside out, where we're you know looking at what the priorities are. Some of the folks that we're that we have close relationships with, but then we also have some longer term issues that we realize are going to take time to implement, take time to build support for that we kind of work on session to session. Um, 
But with that as a backdrop, right now and for the last couple of years, we've been really focused on fish conservation and coastal water quality. Uh, in the fish conservation area, um, we've been working very hard to support a, a fisheries management framework called Catch Shares, uh, which has a, a long history of successful implementation. It tends to do pretty well in bringing back threatened fisheries and also can do pretty well in terms of the economics of the fishermen that are participating in the fishery. Um, it's, it's a little controversial. It's a little bit different, so it's needed some political propping up, uh, and we've, we've spent a lot of time on that. We also were really involved in the 2006 reauthorization of Magnuson-Stevens, which is what governs overall U.S. fisheries law. The 2006 version is a, is a very strong conservation version of, of, that, uh, of that law, and right now it is, it's being attacked quite heavily. Again, that, those are economic stresses on fishermen that are, are pushing to, have a, to, to, to want to move people out of the limits on overfishing that are in place to, to bring some more money in the short term. Understand those needs, but we think that these, these protections that are now in place are, are really critical to helping threatened fisheries rebound, and they're finally starting to work. Um, we're about to jump into a, a federal law around shark finning, uh, and, uh, you know, like I say, we'll look to pitch in wherever Magnuson is threatened. Uh, on the coastal water quality side, we've been working a lot to pass a good little bill that would address harmful algal blooms and ocean dead zones, which uh, are, are in the news uh, more and more these days. It's a growing problem. Uh, and then uh, also marine debris and dealing with some of the garbage that goes into the ocean. So it's a fairly full plate, uh, but there's a lot of good stuff going on. In addition to an election year... Indeed. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, that really is what Ocean Champions is all about. So uh, there are currently 30 uh, champions that we endorsed and supported who are serving in uh, the, the House and the Senate in this Congress. And we are stretching to be able to support and help elect what we hope will be 40 Ocean Champions uh, in 2012 in November. Uh, in addition, we are looking to beat one ocean bad guy this year, a guy who's down in Florida by the name of uh, Steve Sutherland. So how do you work to try to keep people out that are clearly not advocating for healthy ocean legislation <laughs> without revealing too many secrets? <laughs> well, yeah, <it's, laughs> there aren't too many secrets to, to keep. It's pretty straightforward what you do. Um, we, uh, we've done this once before. We actually worked with a number of other environmental groups to campaign hard against uh, former Congressman Richard Pombo, also out in California. We're familiar so the time with him. Was the, okay, <laughs> so yeah, you know him quite well. Former chair of the Natural Resources Committee. Uh, you know, if, if there was an animal that, that, that uh, he couldn't shoot, he'd be upset. If there was a place he couldn't drill, he'd be upset. Um, and we worked with these other groups to build a strong independent expenditure campaign. This is kind of like what you see super PACs doing now, only on a much smaller scale. Um, fortunately for us, Mr. Pombo had some ethical challenges at the time. There's a lot of uh, information coming out suggesting he had done things that were not really legal. Uh, and so rather than really make the campaign about oceans, we really hammered those points through because the important thing was to win our campaign, not to make it about oceans. Uh, but with the combined efforts of, of uh, ourselves, uh, LCV, Sierra, uh, uh, Defenders of Wildlife, and a few others, we were able to beat them. Um, similarly, as we start to look at uh, Congressman Sutherland, who serves in the panhandle of Florida, um, 
you know, we'll understand, first of all, uh, what the key issues of the race are, what the, we'll, we'll conduct polling to understand what are the issues that will move voters. We'll see where Mr. Sutherland stands on these issues, and we'll see if we can find some soft spots, and then we can use uh, you know, advertising, we can use get out the vote, we can use uh, lots of different tools to try to uh, uh, build enough of a, a strong enough voting block against them that we can win. Are there certain areas, for the for t- folks tuning in, by the way, this is Mike Dunmire from Ocean Champions. You're listening to Ocean Currents. Are you finding with um, some of the work you're doing, are there certain areas of the country that are more responsive to messages about the ocean than others? It, you know, it's interesting. It, it, in some senses, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, as you would expect, the coastal areas, you know, California, Washington State, you know, over in the East Coast where I am here, like Delaware, Maryland, North Carolina, uh, people are certainly much more focused on ocean issues, and I think that you've got a lot of people that really appreciate the oceans on an emotional level as well as on just a very pragmatic uh, need to maintain the resources sustainably kind of level. So you'll certainly find a lot of good support on the coasts, um, but the oceans are so important to our economic well-being uh, and so much a part of the daily lives of the people that are on the coast that sometimes uh, the the important conservation initiatives that originate on the coast also in the short term have the ability to you know cause some pain for some voters. So you also will typically find a lot more opposition. Uh, to healthy ocean issues along the coast as well. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's kind of understandable, which is why sometimes we, we've had champions who have been located inland uh, who've really been able to do some wonderful things because they they don't gore anybody's ox when they take a stretch on something that's really in the best interest long-term of the oceans, but that you know might short-term cause some problems. Is are ocean issues a bipartisan issue in in your world, or do you have both supporters on both sides? We do. Um, we absolutely believe that oceans have to be a, a nonpartisan issue. Uh, you know, for a lot of reasons. When they're ju- they're just so critical to all of us. Um, but from a really pragmatic perspective, if you only have friends on one side of the house, then you know, over the law of averages, about half of the time you're not going to be able to get anywhere. Um, so when Ocean Champions started in our first election in 2004, we were pretty close to 50-50 in terms of endorsing Republicans and Democrats. Um, we are still bipartisan, uh, although admittedly these days it's harder for us to find uh, Republicans that will be strong on, a, on enough ocean issues to merit an endorsement, not because those Republicans who care about oceans aren't there, uh, but the the leadership of the party is not focused on conservation, the oceans right now, and and to be successful within a party, you've kind of got to toe the line. Uh, That said, uh, the Republicans that we have endorsed, uh, such as Senator Olympia Snow, uh, Congressman Connie Mack in Florida, uh, have done some really phenomenal things for the oceans, and and we've been able to work really well with them. Um, Right now, we are uh, we're about 75% uh, uh, Democratic in terms of our endorsements and 25% Republican, and, and uh, it's probably not going to improve in 2012. Hmm. What should voters be paying attention to this year, this election year? We have national, regional, local elections, and in terms of listening for the candidates that support ocean and environmental legislation, what are some things that people should be paying attention to? Well, I think first of all, uh, you know, my, my you know, 
number one advice anytime I'm having this conversation is, you know, do the reading, do the research, go past the go past the ads, go past the headlines and really understand the issues. Uh, and then think very strongly about what are the issues that matter most to you as a person and really vote those issues. Um, you know, we've started, you know, we, we have some terms we've used around here a lot, you know, like vote the ocean, elections matter. Um, it's easy, I think, as we mentioned earlier, to kind of focus on, to, to navel gaze and focus on only where the most immediate needs that you've got. But, uh, you know, as we hear about things like climate change and uh, overfishing and resource depletion, more and more you've really got to pay attention to the longer term and think about really achieving a kind of balance in what you look for. Um, the other thing that I would say is, is it's, it's very natural right now for people to be very turned off by politics. I know that there are a number of people that watch what's going on in Washington, D.C. and think, you know, I just can't take it anymore. <laughs> Um, and then you know, we understand. But what I would say to that is that nothing is going to change by disengaging. Right. And the only way that you're going to lead to a better outcome and have a government that feels to you more responsive to what you care about is to double down and, and jump in and engage even more intensely than you have in the past. In terms of letter writing, and a lot of organizations are making it super easy these days to click here, click there, fill in your address, and a letter goes off. And I know there's different rank of quality, or not quality, but um, a different weight that a letter or an email or a phone call carries. How effective is letter writing these days? I had heard a statistic that one letter represents like 100 constituents in a, a region or whatnot. But can you talk a little bit about that in terms of um, local folks getting activated to voice their concerns about issues? Yeah, that's that's really a, a great question, Jennifer, and and, and very uh, very timely. And you're right. I think email uh, and, and all these electronic tools have made it that much easier for people to contact their representatives, you know, through those click and send kinds of approaches. And as you might expect, the fact that it's so easy to do kind of cheapens it. Um, we will, on occasion, send out blasts asking our constituents to to respond on something like that but only when we've been told by senior committee staff or the members themselves, hey, I need to hear from my constituents on this issue. I need to know where people stand. And then they'll just kind of count the number that are coming in, positive or negative. If you really would like your voice specifically to be heard, the two best things that you can do are either pick up the phone and call the office of your senators uh, or your specific uh, representative and ask to speak to the legislative official that deals with the issue that you want to talk about. Those person-to-person phone calls carry a lot of weight, and a handwritten letter uh, is tremendously effective. I forget who the member was, uh, but I remember having a conversation, you know, three, four years ago where they were talking about this highly contentious issue that they were dealing with, and we asked them who they had heard from their constituents on it, and what they said was that they had gotten all kinds of the electronic uh, transmissions, but they'd only gotten a dozen letters. Mm. And they read every one of those letters, and every one of those letters, because they took the time the member himself read it, it has a disproportionate weight in terms of, of the influence that it carries. So I don't know if you could apply a ratio to it, but they are important because they're rare. Uh, and the phone calls as well. And the thing to do in each one of these cases is recognize that the staffers are incredibly busy, incredibly put upon, the members are very busy. So what you want to do is is be very respectful of their time. 
tight, concise messages, uh, straight and to the point. Don't belabor it. Don't tell too many stories. Just you know, let them know where you stand. Let them know why it's important to you. And that's going to count. That's great. Thank you for that overview. I think it's really important for people to hear that because it's so rampant. Our email, our inboxes are getting filled with do this now, do this now. And uh, I think people feel really good about clicking the boxes. And I think that's great. But I was very curious how much weight these things carry in reality back in D.C. So this is a great overview. In fact, it's worth noting that sometimes it just gets them angry. And this is one of those situations where not, not the member, but the staffer, if you can consider the job that you have to do. And if you've got a million things that you've got to get done, you've only got two hours before something is due and has to be in your boss's hands and you're just getting, you know, steamrolled with, 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 you know, hundreds and hundreds of emails on an issue that you've got to deal with in some way, you know, if it's not at the right time, it's, it, it, it may impact their ability to help you. Great. So since Ocean Champions is really monitoring the scene of where to where the voice is needed, how can listeners that are listening today or, um, get more involved to keep up on these um, opportune times to communicate their opinions about ocean issues? Well, uh, I would absolutely say to, to watch our website and to watch us on the social media. Uh, we're at www.oceanchampions.org. You can find us under uh, Ocean Champions on Facebook and Twitter. We communicate a lot there. Um, we will, like I say, be putting out probably about 50 endorsements. We tend to win about 80% of our elections. So with those 50 endorsements, we hope that at least 40 uh, will wind up winning. And these are the folks, every single person that we endorse, we research, we take the time to sit down and have a one-on-one conversation with them. We don't do questionnaires. We don't do scorecards because politics is, frankly, a lot more complex and subtle than things like that allow for. But we get to know the individual, what their motivations are, how they see oceans as playing in their district politically, what they're, what they're interested in, where, which committees they want to serve on, and really kind of what their objectives in the ocean world would be. So the people that we're endorsing are the folks that we're looking at and saying, all right, we've taken the time to get to know them. These folks are the most likely folks to get in there and do strong, important things for ocean health, to hold the line against some bad things that others might want to do. Uh, And we would absolutely, if you live in these districts and care about the ocean, ask that you really consider our guidance in terms of your voting and and support these endorsed champions. Um, Similarly, I would also say, uh, if you really care about oceans, please do support ocean champions. Uh, We are trying to help the good guys win. We can't do that without support from people who love the oceans as well. Great. And people can find out about that at oceanchampions.org as well. Absolutely. Fantastic. Last question. We just have a minute or two. In terms of the bigger, one of the things Dan Bost was talking about is just the relevance of the ocean in people's daily lives. What What are your thoughts? Being that you work so closely with legislators in terms of passing of laws and people getting elected. For the rest of us here, what? how do you think we should get the ocean a little bit more higher up in people's minds? Well, the, the simplest things I can throw out there, I think I mentioned earlier, uh, the oceans uh, provide 50% of the oxygen that we need to survive. So if you simply take two breaths, and consider what your life would be like if you only got to take one of those two breaths every every you know two that you took. Kind of realize how important the oceans are. Not to mention that they regulate climate. They provide uh, the primary source of protein for one billion people in the world, and, and a significant source for many of the rest of us. 
uh, and, you know, walk out on a beach sometime and watch the sunset and, and see how you feel and think how it would be if it was just loaded up with trash, there were no there were no life within it, and, and, uh, and if the oceans would hold the same resonance. So they're so critical just in terms of the life support system for the Earth. Uh, at the end of the day, I think a lot of it comes down to they're kind of an emotional support system for so many people that are here. And uh, just consider it as you, uh, as you pull that lever in the voting booth. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate your time. We've been talking with Mike Denmeyer from Ocean Champions. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, thanks so much, Jennifer. It's a pleasure. Thanks for calling in. So education, that kind of comes down to it, is getting people more educated about the role of our ocean in our lives. And I've, we've talked about that a lot on the past on ocean currents. And I encourage everybody to share that with people that may not know so much about the ocean to share what you do know, because it really makes a difference in helping people to get a better picture of the importance of it in our lives. Recently, there was an incredible achievement. Uh, James Cameron, the filmmaker who produced Avatar, uh, recently completed an, an incredible mission. He dove solo in a, real, a specially designed submarine to the deepest part of the ocean in the Marianas Trench, which is about 200 miles southwest of Guam. And the depth was about 35,576 feet, which is about 6.8 miles deep. And originally, it had been initially explored in 1960 by Jacques Picard and U.S. Navy Captain Don Walsh, but this is the first time it was a solo mission. And thinking about uh, awareness, I'm, this got major national news, and I'm sure it captivated people's curiosity and the awe and wonder of the ocean. So I'm hoping that helps bring the ocean to light for many people as well, these exciting expeditions. Thanks for tuning in today to Ocean Currents. We are the first Monday of every month here on KWMR. You can catch past episodes at www.cordellbank.noaa.gov and subscribe to the Ocean Currents podcast there. And if there's a topic that you'd like to learn more about or hear more about on Ocean Currents, feel free to email me at jennifer.stock, S-T-O-C-K, at N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. I'd love to hear from you. also love to hear what you think of the show. So feel free to contact me. I talked about a lot of different stuff today in terms of ocean leadership, and we have a ways to go. So keep plugged in, and remember, this is a great opportunity when we vote to consider the ocean and who we vote for. I think it's one of the best things we can do. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KWMR. Take care. Thanks for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks for helping to protect our ocean.